The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion Podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Today is the 250th anniversary of the birth of Ludwig van Beethoven. Not only one of the greatest composers who ever lived, but a man of profound spiritual insights whose works themselves are spiritual insights and, I believe, a spiritual resource for anybody who comes to love them, as I have all my life. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Sir James Macmillan, the not only distinguished but very exciting Scottish composer, a committed Catholic, but somebody who's profoundly interested in religious traditions generally and the relationship between faith and music. And at the moment on Radio 4, he has a series called Faith in Music, in which he looks at the complex lives and religious faith of Talis, Wagner, Elgar and Bernstein, a very interesting quartet. Not what I would have expected. I mean, I've only heard the Wagner episode and I'm so glad I did. Welcome, James. Great honour to have you on Holy Smoke. Thank you. It's um, great to be with you. The composers you've chosen for Faith and Music, I think, illustrate with a small seed the Catholicity of your own religious interests. I've just listened to the episode on Wagner. I've always felt that Parsifal is one of the most spiritual operas ever written, one, in fact, one of the most profoundly spiritual pieces of music, although what its theological message is has always slightly confused me. Here's Wagner, famously anti-Catholic, writing his longest single opera, at the heart of which lies a sort of Eucharist, accompanied by transcendently beautiful music. The next episode will be on Edward Elgar, who was controversial during his life for being a Roman Catholic, as we were called. Um, in fact, the Dream of Gerontis had to be Babylonized to make it less Catholic, but it, in fact, lost his faith. And then there's Leonard Bernstein, and both you and I take the, in some circles, rather heretical view that his mass is a wonderful creation. This, however, is the perfect opportunity, James, to talk about the spirituality and the music of Beethoven. And I wonder if you would agree with me that Beethoven was a man of profound spiritual insight. Very much so. And um, we, we would have found a, a, a natural place for him in this uh, series of programmes about the faith lives of composers, of the great composers. We were limited to four, so who knows, we, we might get back to a second series at some stage in which Beethoven would certainly be one of our first candidates. Although we could actually run series after series about this, because when you start digging into the lives of these people, what they thought and and what they believed and what they didn't believe, um, there's an incredible story to tell, story after story. And in this first season, for example, we've chosen, well, apart from Talis, of course, who, who was our first programme, who lived in the 16th century at the heart of the uh, convulsions of the English Reformation, the, the other three are not the kind of composers you would normally associate with the, the questions of religion. And I suppose Beethoven would also come into that category. I mean, Wagner is a, is a very interesting case in point. 
Elgar will come to him, uh, a Catholic who lost his faith, and then Bernstein, this famously secular and left-wing Jewish composer from a Jewish background, but not someone that we, we remember for his, his Jewish traditions, although they are deeply entrenched in his music. So there's a, an incredible range of stories to tell. Suppose with Beethoven, that the link between Beethoven and Wagner, uh, and there are many links between them, I suppose they're both in their different ways seen by history as complicated characters, and in fact, unpleasant characters in some ways. Wagner, especially so, perhaps might might say unfairly because of uh, he's been associated with Nazism. I say unfairly because he had certainly no idea that that was going to happen, but certainly Adolf Hitler and the Nazis tried to appropriate his music and his, his life to shape the direction of culture in the Third Reich. Beethoven, though, there's a whole range of very strange stories about him as well, if you start digging and start reading his letters and what people said to him. Nevertheless, in the sense of what their music communicates and and the kind of cosmic range and ambition of both composers in their different ways, these are deeply spiritual composers. Um, Beethoven, not just deeply spiritual in in that general sense, but deeply Catholic. Wagner, of course, was famously anti-Catholic and uh, like all true 19th century German leftists. He was uh, decidedly anti-clerical generally. But yet, you're right, there is Parsifal, this this incredibly religious work that has big communion scenes at the heart of it. And uh, there's something really searching, there's a real spiritual search, a search for the sacred going on there. And And it is, interestingly, it is. Parsifal is the favorite piece of music of Pope Francis. You won't hear me say very many complimentary things about him on Holy Smoke, but he does have absolutely excellent taste in music. And I was talking to a member of the Sistine Chapel Choir, an English singer, there's a number of them now, who said that, I think he talked to the Pope about this, and the Pope said that he would like to listen to Parsifal at least once a week, and, and possibly does. And he is very keen on the Knappertsbruchs, one of the many Knappertsbruchs recordings of it. And I've often wondered what it is that Pope Francis finds so fascinating about Parsifal. But but to go back to Beethoven, nobody could deny that he was a moral man, I mean, even moralistic at times, who became more and more interested in religion in later life. A later life that fell apart in many respects, as he confronted the reality of nearly total deafness, which is something that didn't happen until he was rather older than most people imagine. There was tremendous drunkenness, bitter vicious personal attacks on his sister-in-law in in an attempt to get custody of his nephew, Carl. He succeeded in it. One of the things he did, he loved Carl, but he treated him badly. Carl tried to commit suicide, as you know, but he forced Carl to pray every morning with him. And you find Beethoven writing very explicitly about redemptive suffering. I noticed one in Maynard Solomon's book, where Beethoven says that mankind's strength must stand the test. That is to say, he must endure without complaining and feel his worthlessness, and then again achieve his perfection, that perfection which the Almighty will then bestow upon him. And perhaps that's one of the differences between Beethoven and Wagner, is that Beethoven is very, very specific in his references to God, often he calls him the deity or the Godhead or whatever, In addition, there is 
as you know far better than I do, Beethoven the Catholic. Beethoven died a Catholic. He asked for and received the last rites on his deathbed. And when he was writing his, I think, supreme large-scale masterpiece, the Miss Solemnis, researched the liturgy of the Mass in great detail. So that raises the question, rather simple question, to what extent was Beethoven the Catholic? Obviously, he was born one, grew up in the profoundly Catholic atmosphere of Bonn, then moved to Vienna, which was more cosmopolitan, but he was great friends with Archduke Rudolf, who became, I'm right in saying, a cardinal. And... And yet there's no record, so far as I'm aware, of Beethoven attending church. Not that there necessarily would be a record, but to what extent do you think Beethoven was Catholic in the accepted sense of the term? Well, I think you've just got to look at his writings, um, and you've cited a few already, Damien. He, he did write about God. He wrote about religion. First of all, of course, he, he did see his life and work as a, as a vocation. He had a very high-minded and justifiably high-minded view of his role as a composer. He described his work as a divine art, and he regarded his symphonies as not merely products of high craftsmanship, but expressions of a moral vision. We can come to that later. But that's, a, that's a, an idea of himself deeply rooted in a belief that, that great music could move the world. He saw his life as a mission and a vocation. But the, 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 the world, the, the modern world, the postmodern world, our, our world is very much engaged, has been very much engaged in a curious attempt to de-Catholicise Beethoven. Uh, even in the most religious works, like the Misa Solemnis, the spin is, and it's not just with Beethoven, it's with the others, and we've mentioned a few of them already, even Elgar, the spin is that this music should be seen as work of generalised spiritual feeling rather than the work of a Catholic composer responding to the mysteries of the faith. So would, would that be the same de-Catholicised Beethoven who wrote this in his Heiligenstadt Testament? Almighty God, you look down onto my innermost soul and into my heart, and you know that it is filled with love for humanity and a desire to do good. Or of whom his closest friend, Anton Schindler, insisted that, quote, his entire life is proof that he was truly religious at heart. Is this the same unreligious Beethoven who wrote to a friend, I must live by myself. I know that God is nearer to me than others. I go without fear to him. I have constantly recognized and understood him. Or he wrote to the Grand Duke Rudolf, nothing higher exists than to approach God and to extend his glory among humanity. I mean, even just these snapshots of Beethoven's thoughts and his words to his friends points to someone deeply immersed in, in a kind of religious life. And that religious life came from his Catholic traditions and Catholic beliefs. And I think it's particularly noticeable in the Miss Solemnis, where the Holy Spirit descends in the form of what is it, a flute. And then there's a gorgeous violin solo, which I often think of as Beethoven's second violin concerto, music of the most sublime beauty. But what it really depicts is the epiclesis or transubstantiation or whatever, isn't it? You know, it is, it is very strategically placed in the mass because, as you know, Beethoven spent an enormous amount of time studying the text of the mass before he set it, which is not something that could be said of many composers, I suspect, at least composers after a certain point in history. 
Yes, I think the the mass meant a lot to him, and he would he was the kind of composer he had the kind of mind that would want to get to grips with it, get his brain filled with some kind of scholarly idea of what was happening, what was understood to be happening, what was the traditional view of, of what the mass is about. But the Misa Solemnis is an incredible piece. It's it's a, a truly wonderful masterpiece. I, I have a special moment, a favourite moment in the Misa Solemnis, and everyone has, has the moments you've mentioned yours, was it the wonderful violin solo that you talk about. But there's an, an extraordinary but brief moment uh, in the Solemnis where, in the Lamb of God, the Agnus Dei, where it's quite clear in Beethoven's mind that the Lamb of God is a real thing, a real part of the cosmos. And in this case, he's overcoming the terrors of contemporary war and revolution. Agnus Dei, qui tollis peccatamundi, miserere nobis, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. And in many musical settings, and I've made some myself of this mass movement, the composer attempts to invoke solace and peace. But in the Misa Solemnis, you hear the world breaking in, the world that he was a part of, but it's a world that has a sense of threat. There's, you hear the trumpets and drums of an army. I, I don't think it's fanciful to imagine that he was responding to what he was seeing all around him, invasion, war, revolution, um, the ontology of violence, which seeks to overthrow the kingdom of heaven, the world breaking in, uh, the ideology of ever-improving human society. At his, at his time, of course, it was Napoleon and all the disruptive and violent ideas that came out of the revolutions of that time, attempting to sweep the loving God aside. A moment in the Mesa Solemnis, the solace and peace of the Agnus Dei are swept aside and we hear the tramp of, of an army. And it's shocking um, however many times you hear it, it still takes you by surprise, the sudden martial music in yeah. the Agnus Dei of all places. It's one of the reasons that the Mr. Solemnus, to me, means more than any other of Beethoven's large-scale works, even the Ninth Symphony. You mentioned <laughs> earlier the, the Heiligenstadt Testament, which was written in 1802, just as Beethoven was coming to terms with the fact that his deafness was unlikely to go away and was getting worse. Of course, it would get far, far worse in years to come. But it's a very long document in which Beethoven appears to be contemplating suicide and then rules out the possibility. It's rambling in places and superbly eloquent in others. But what it really is, is a statement of the most formidable moral courage. Because Beethoven then followed through. And as his life got more and more miserable and his deafness got worse, and he got embroiled in all sorts of disputes and, and started drinking very heavily, Nonetheless, the pursuit of moral and musical truth, which I don't think was separate for him, and also a sort of purity, which increasingly found expression in his fascination with the polyphonic music of the Catholic Church. This continued. Nothing could deter him, it seems. Apart perhaps from that wretched lawsuit with his sister-in-law, which should stop him composing for a few years. But right up until the end, this is a composer who is seeking to develop spiritually himself, but also to help mankind develop spiritually. Do you think that's, that's true? Yeah, and for him, the two were closely linked. You know, he, he was interested in religion and politics, and sometimes simultaneously. 
I think the composer was a, an extraordinary seismograph of political ethics and religion uh, of his time. He was inspired by resistance to despots, for example, uh, as well as moral ideals in human behaviour. In his opera, Fidelio, he celebrates married love, freedom from slavery and, and the defeat of tyrants. Now, to the Catholic, these are all interconnected, but maybe to the modern sceptic, these are just a baffling mishmash of unrelated and random things. He, was, he put himself in opposition to tyrants. He, he saw that tyrants could only be defeated by resistance and tyrants must never be flattered. So when the scales fell from his eyes, he changed his mind over the dedication of the Eroica Symphony and he erased the name of Napoleon from the score when he declared himself emperor. Many, many talk of Beethoven's search for justice in these works and many of his works, but it's also tempered, I think, with a profound knowledge of divine mercy expressed with insight and vision in the Misa Solemnis, which is one of the most profoundly Catholic works ever written. You mentioned marriage. Beethoven, of course, never married. And he didn't never marry for the reason that many composers don't marry. He never married. I suppose the conventional narrative is that he was too difficult a man. He fell in love constantly, but no woman was prepared to take him on. But in fact, I get the impression that part of the problem was that Beethoven had such a high view of marriage, took it so seriously as a commitment that it wasn't something that he would enter into lightly or as part of a formal arrangement as as so many people did. And that's one of the things that kept him a bachelor. And uh, it's no surprise then that his one and only opera is a celebration of marriage. As I say, baffling for the modern mind, a lot of the four revolutionaries today think marriage is some kind of repressive thing and and they kind of recoil in horror when they realise what this opera is about. But, you know, he did have such an ideal. He had an ideal about many things, but he had an ideal about human relationships. And I think he had an ideal of what marriage was and he expresses it so beautifully in this secular work in a way that maybe religious works couldn't and haven't since. He's he's a This one opera is a, a huge advocacy for the sacrament of marriage. It's the notion of Beethoven, the moralist, and in some ways a relatively conventional moralist, which I think is unacceptable to a establishment which is absolutely determined to portray him as a revolutionary and nothing else. Sorry, this is a bit tasteless, but he did visit prostitutes, but he beat himself up over it. I mean, he was guilty and disgusted with himself. We don't, he probably didn't do it very often, but nonetheless. I'm interested that you say that some of Beethoven's works can convey a spirituality that's more intense than that of overtly religious works. I feel that very strongly about some of the late piano sonatas and and all the late string quartets. First of all, perhaps we shouldn't consider them to be secular works. But we did a Holy Smoke earlier this year about Opus 132 and Beethoven's Song of Thanksgiving for recovery from serious illness. It is addressed to the Godhead, meaning God, Beethoven was not a pantheist, unlike I think Schubert probably was, but Beethoven wasn't. And you can hear a hard-won acceptance of suffering. And I think very few composers can convey this. First of all, I think you need the ability to write sublime music, which lots of composers don't even try to do. To me, the only 19th century composer who can touch me in the same way is Bruckner in his great adagios, which particularly the adagio of the Ninth Symphony, which was written when he was dying, 
in which you can sense struggle and pain being transformed, transubstantiated, if you like, into a hard-won serenity. Do you hear that in these pieces? Very much so. And perhaps it's music that does come from the experience of struggle, the experience of suffering. Certainly Beethoven went through that via Dolorosa, via Crutches in his own life and in his own mind, I suppose. With his loss of uh, hearing, of course, is talked a lot about, but his, um, his personality must have made him a very lonely and isolated figure as well, continually falling out with people and not building relationships and his life's journey was one of uh, into more and more isolation and from from that experience have come these especially these great late works you're right i, th- I think in some of the, the works you mentioned you, you can hear the person but you can hear the tradition as well the fact that he did try to discover more about polyphony and uh, and the workings of traditional church music the music that he must have heard at mass people tried to say that he, he didn't go to mass very often. He probably didn't, but he, he would probably be there enough to notice the music and, and, and would probably want to make some sense of it. Hence, we can hear a return of a strange modality in his uh, in that slow movement that you, yes. you talked about. From his. But there's also the, the vision of, of music that has not been heard before, an unimagined music that has come from a very special and unique place. Music before its time, of course, and the late piano sonatas giving us a vision of the unknown, perhaps even a vision of heaven. I feel that way myself very strongly about the music. You said this is music that had you know, said things that had never been said, and I sometimes think they've never been said since either, that Beethoven was able to penetrate the veil or whatever metaphor you want to use. Some of his music radiates a wisdom that seems truly otherworldly, unlike composers who try and create music that's otherworldly as a sort of special effect. Hmm. Beethoven really does, I wouldn't say channeling something, but I would say that Beethoven's inspiration is something that's really beyond our comprehension, certainly beyond mine. Yeah, and and the fact that he didn't need to go beyond his own body. There's an incarnational aspect to this music. He didn't need to go beyond his own experience. I mean, he probably thought in many ways he was writing music according to the tried and tested traditions of of the age. And his teachers were, of course, great composers themselves. And you're right, he lived at a time when there was not this constant itch and need to dabble in in unknown cultures, exotic cultures. That was to come with the onslaught of the 19th century and romanticism. But he found it all under his nose, or at least deep in his own soul. But in that soul, it's an encultured soul. It's a, a soul that firmly rooted in the society and indeed the religion of his time. Do you think that in this troubled era, and I don't think anybody would deny that we're living in, a, in an unusually, and I do mean unusually, unexpectedly troubled period, one that's having an effect on people's morale, certainly on mine, the Beethoven is a resource for everybody. It's a, I always think it's a scandal. That it is. I, I went through secondary school without a single lesson on the subject of Beethoven. Endless lessons on Shakespeare, not one on the subject of Beethoven. Probably most people might not be drawn to the Missus Solemnis, which is a work that rewards repeated listening. But there are so many pieces of Beethoven that are both profound and accessible. And I wondered if you could suggest some pieces of Beethoven that might 
cheer people up at the very least, which is something he's good at doing because he's good at conveying optimism, even in the darkest moments of his life. Cheerful, mm. carefree, but very, very cleverly worked out music. Yeah. Well, I, I think let's begin with the symphonies and go through them. Um, I mean, there were some of the first music that I ever encountered as a, a young boy. I was fascinated by Beethoven's story, uh, his, his life story. My mum used to talk to me about Beethoven. I remember reading the little Ladybird books and the life of the great... So did I. Weren't they good? Fantastic. They were really good. What a, yeah, a wonderful way in for, for young children. It humanises the individual, it humanises the, the, the genius from history, as it were. And it, it didn't take me long to start listening to things. I wanted to hear what these symphonies were. Symphony number no. five, I mean, such a sort of ominous opening, but it, it's, but what, what, what a signal to the world. And the way that he transforms that sense of the ominous, that sense of trepidation, almost, and threat that there is in the first movement to, into a sort of glorious journey over the four movements is, is a, a marvellous journey for modern men and women to make as well. The Eroica, I mentioned it uh, earlier, the third symphony. What a joyful piece that is. These kind of symphonies, the third, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, are works that I had heard before I was practically out of lo- uh, short trousers and uh, they've lived with me ever since. And, and it's it's not too late to make a first encounter with this music. I mean, I find myself in conversations with adults who said, oh, I missed out on, on the whole classical music thing and, Well, it's not too late. You do come to this kind of music with a different mindset, a different soul set from a child, of course. It can never be too late to begin that journey. And it is a journey of the soul. Perhaps it's a a time like this when there's a sense of real trepidation and loss and anxiety for the future, that mankind needs that spiritual rejuvenation, uh, which is there in spades in the symphonies of Beethoven. I'd also make a plea for many of the piano sonatas. I sometimes wonder how accessible they are. It's difficult for me to tell because I've been listening to them since I was a small child. But I think the thing that first really astonished me about Beethoven is this moment in the sonata, Opus 111, his last piano sonata, There Are Only Two Movements. And one of the variations, as you well know, sounds uncannily like jazz. And I remember as a boy, it's embarrassing to recount it, getting up and dancing around the room to it and saying to my father, Beethoven was writing jazz, and he wasn't, but it's an astonishing, I won't say it's an anticipation of anything, but it just shows the incredible range of moods and range of joyful moods in Beethoven. I was also tremendously fond of the finale of the violin concerto, an irresistible Mm. tune. We, we brought the great pianist Stephen Osborne to the Cumnock Trist last year or the year before, and he packed the hall out, of course, and there were people in that audience who were hearing the three last sonatas by Beethoven for the first time, and it was an astonishing moment for the festival, but I think an astonishing moment for everyone that was there. Some of us knew the music quite well, some of us didn't, some were hearing it for the first time, but the the sense of advocacy that a great performer like Stephen Osborne can bring to this music is the way in. There were people there who probably didn't know what they were hearing and hadn't heard all the great stories about its significance, but were totally won over. I'm not surprised he is an absolutely wonderful pianist. I had the great pleasure of interviewing him, I think for The Spectator, years ago. The extraordinary penetrating insights right across the repertoire. 
If you had to choose one piece of Beethoven's, one movement to live with, a horrible choice, but nonetheless, what would it be? I think it might be something from the opera, Fidelio, and it's, there's purely subjective reasons for that. It was, along with the symphonies, one of the first pieces of Beethoven I, I got to know. I was given the Carol Boehm recording from the, that, that Deutsche Grammophon set that was made back in the 60s or 70s. And uh, I was completely won over. But there's just something about that generosity of spirit for someone that is regarded as such a kind of strange social disaster, someone that didn't seem to understand human relations. My God, he got right into the nature of human relations, not just the relation of husband and wife, but actually the smaller, perhaps less important relationships right from the beginning. The, the scenes where the minor characters sing at the very, very beginning uh, there's some real generosity of spirit there and understanding of ordinary people. But I think now that you mention it, I mean, the choruses are fantastic. There's a number of wonderful choruses. The final choruses are beautiful and li live with me and, and inspire my, my heart. What about the prisoner's chorus when these prisoners are brought oh, yeah. up yeah. for a glimpse of sunlight and suddenly you can feel Beethoven's empathy with the dispossessed, empathy with the poor, empathy and love of the prisoner and the oppressed. Again, the, the, the political Beethoven is there simultaneously with the spiritual Beethoven. If I could suggest, my, my, I've just been thinking, what, what would be my own choice? I think it might be the, whether it's one movement or not, it's difficult to say, but the second half of the sonata, Opus 110 in A flat, where Alfred Brendel called it his passion music, the, the piano picks out this lament there are two fugues on either side and the second fugue just sort of breaks down and it's like a man breaking down. And then the theme of the fugue is transformed into a sort of rhapsody. So joyful and any performance that doesn't convey that, I think misses out. I haven't asked you about your own music and let's do that another time. But I am just going to say that when I was feeling very troubled a couple of weeks ago, I went to Mass and my parish priest has had the wonderful idea of employing a soprano soloist, I think she's a student at the Royal College or the Royal Academy somewhere, and a fantastic organist. And they were, as most weeks, singing your St Anne Mass. But what's different about this, of course, is that because he's a proper organist, I heard all the harmonies. And in the sanctus of the St Anne Mass, I was really, really profoundly moved and so grateful that I've been there to hear that piece by you, James, which is why it's just such an honor to have you on. Holy smoke. And please come back and talk to us about more composers because you know something? Yeah. Your series addressing the faith of composers. As far as I know, there is no book on the subject, no serious study of the religious faith of a range of composers. Yeah, that might, that might change and uh, I don't know if you noticed some of the rather provocative probings of Richard Bell in the Wagner programme the other day, but he, he has a theology of the ring. And even just putting that, that, those words in a sentence is enough to set people off. And he, he can see a kind of Christian allegory in, in the ring and, and even in Tristan, as I do, and as Roger Scruton did. There are stories to be told here, and we'll hear more and more of them in the future. So, James McMillan, thank you so much. And... Let's end with part of the chorus from Fidelio that you chose, the moment where prisoners in the Spanish jail are allowed into the garden for a tantalising moment of freedom, and they sing of their joy and also their trust in God. And it's conducted here by Leonard Bernstein. 